Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. All right, let's get our Bibles open. And please forgive me, there's a couple big words in here, so we'll see. Okay, Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and set them off. Thank you very much. All right. She was so nervous. She kept coming out in the foyer. How do you say this one? And I was like making up everything. Sarah's in my uh, life group. We absolutely love her. But any moment that I could possibly tease her, I'm going to take advantage of that. All right. I hope you get your Bibles open. How many of you are full of joy tonight? Okay. Maybe about half of you. I'm not sure all of you were really meaning it, uh, but let's just kind of think about that for a second, okay? If you're online watching this, and, uh, or you're here watching this, so think about it. If you are a Christian, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you have put your trust, your faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you believe that he died on that cross, he was buried, and he was raised to life, and he saves you, he forgives you your sins. If you're a Christian, now ready, listen, you are his co-heir. That means all the inheritance that Christ has, you possess. And to prove that, God gave you and I a down payment on our future inheritance. That down payment's called the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God lives in you. Do you understand that, Christian? All of God's divine power lives in you, according to Peter. And he has sealed you. Do you know what that means? There's nobody can open that seal but God. So you are sealed. Nobody, the devil cannot, no other person. You cannot even make yourself lose your salvation. It is a guarantee. He is the author and the guarantee and the finisher of your faith, the completer of your faith. You are adopted into his family. You are a child of God. You know what John says? Jesus said it, and John recorded it, that the Father loves you, Christian, to the same degree that he loves his Son. Now listen, if your mind's not starting to get blown, you're not really thinking about what I'm telling you. God the Father loves you to the same degree that he loves his own Son, according to what Jesus said. The Bible says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The adversary, the devil, cannot do anything against you but by the decree and the permission of God. And his power is infinitely greater than the adversary. So it's not like it's a close struggle here. It's infinite in its disparity, infinite in its distance between the power of the devil and the power of God. 
So when I ask if you are full of joy, and the Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength, then are you full of the confidence that endures in you regardless of your circumstances that all those things I just said about you are true for you? How can you have a bad day? How can you wear a dour expression? How can you be discouraged to the point where you no longer want to live for Christ when that kind of truth lives in your soul? Pretty amazing, isn't it? So how many of you are full of joy? Right? And we got to preach that to people. Because there are people that are suffering, and I know people that are suffering, and even in the midst of their trial, they're full of joy. There's not a time in your life you do not have access to that full joy. So let's get our Bibles open, Acts chapter 13, and we're going to look at what the main business of the church is. And I'm going to ask you that. Do you really know what the church is really all about? What is it all about? Some are going to say the church is about the assignment to care for one another and visiting the sick and praying with the suffering and coming alongside each other as we go through experiences in life. Well, that's a maintenance perspective. A lot of that's true, probably all that's true, but that's a maintenance perspective. And the book of Acts is an indictment on it. That's not the main work of the church. That's not the main business of the church. And even though community and care are important, The main business of the church, here it is, is that we do not exist for ourselves, but that God would bless this world of lost people through us. That's the main business of the church. So I'm going to say it again, because if somehow this goes over our heads, none of this series is ever going to make sense. It's never going to implode your heart or explode in your heart with power. So here's the main business of the church. God wants to bless this world of spiritually lost people by saving them, giving them life, and he wants to do it through his church. So how much do you love your church? And if Cornerstone's not your church and you're visiting and your church is somewhere else, how much do you love your church? And how much are you on mission and on the assignment that God has given to us? I want you to read this. The main business of the church is to promote God's glory to the nations by obeying the Holy Spirit and witnessing of Jesus Christ to the end of the earth. We are not stockpiling money. We cannot hide from the evil of the world. Listen, Christian, you cannot create a a bubble of Christian subculture that you live in, safe and protected, and you dare not spend all your energy from your walls in. If we're a church where all of our focus is from our walls inward, we are a church utterly not on mission. Because the gospel aims outward and forward, and we boldly, urgently declare to the end of the earth what Jesus has done to bring life to spiritually dead people. So I want you to recall, and this is just the preamble, this is just the introduction, we're going to get rolling, but I want you to recall for a moment Acts chapter 1. That the Holy Spirit poured out on all of the apostles of Jesus. He empowered them, you remember the, the verse, to be witnesses. Now listen to the geographic expansion. In Jerusalem, where they lived, 
to Judea, the bigger part of where Jerusalem was located, to Samaria, halfway up to the top of Israel, and to the end of the earth. So this is what the gospel does. It, it expands concentrically. It goes from Jerusalem, where the Spirit of God poured out, then a bigger circle to Judea, then a bigger circle to Samaria, and then a bigger circle, the biggest circle you can get, to the end of the earth. Now just for a, for a moment, map that out in your own life. Is there that expansion in your life? Well, Christian, I'm telling you, if you're on mission, there will be an expansion. And if this church, Cornerstone, is really embedded on, on mission, it will keep expanding. And they stayed in Jerusalem until Acts chapter 8. You remember Saul was persecuting them. It just, he touched off a, an expansion. They fled for their lives. And they went up into Samaria. They expanded into Judea. But wherever they went, these believers who are now being scattered kept telling people about Jesus. And a great many people, the Bible says, were, in, were saved. Now, in Acts chapter 3, we've already got Jerusalem, we've already got Judea and Samaria. Now we're in the third and final expansion. We're just beginning to see the gospel unleashed on the Roman Empire. Acts chapter 13. Some people call this the missionary era. Do you know what that word missionary means? It means sent ones. You ought to write that in the margins of your Bible somewhere. Missionary means sent one. If you are a missionary, you are one who is being sent by God with a message. And what we're going to see is that the gospel is going to advance, and it's going to advance from a church that we have already been, been introduced to. It's in the city of Antioch. You remember the city? It's a half a million people that live in it. It's part of the Roman Empire. It's the third largest city of the Roman Empire. It is really cosmopolitan, meaning diverse. It is extremely commercialized. It's the the, the money, the flow of wealth from the east went through Antioch up into Rome, but it was exceedingly corrupt. So it's cosmopolitan, commercial, and corrupt. It is perfect for God to plant his church. And it's a church that had an incredible leadership team, and here's what we're going to learn today. What does a godly leadership team of a church look like? This is all of what Luke is about to show us. So I'm inviting you, once again, get your Bibles open to the passage that Sarah already read. I'm going to show you three points, and here's point number one. These leaders at this church of Antioch were unified on the Word of God. Now wait till you hear just how unified they were. It's pretty amazing. Verse one. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, I've told you before, and I, I just keep telling you this, and I think sooner or later you're going to actually believe me if you don't already, but I'm just going to keep telling you this. The experts have told us there is no time in human history that the world was more divided than in the first century. Now, I know that's mind-boggling, right? Because we are in an unbelievably divided country right now. 
Man, if I were encouraging you to do anything other than read the Bible, maybe take a break from the news. It's depressing. There's an agenda in the media. There really is. It is satanically fueled sometimes. So you want to be really careful what you keep allowing into your mind. You want to keep being careful what you're listening to, what radio stations that are podcasts all day. Be careful what comes into your mind is going to come out of your life. But the world was divided in the first century. Now listen, the Greeks had no love for the Romans. The Romans had none for the Greeks. The Jews had little love for anybody who wasn't a Jew. They absolutely hated the half-Jew Samaritans. The educated saw themselves as unbelievably superior than the uneducated, and the rich truly despised the poor. I mean, I could keep going on and on between husbands and wives and parents, fathers in particular, and children, but that should suffice. It was just incredibly divided. But all those groups, now you ready? Here's the good news. All those groups that I just mentioned came together in this church. Now listen, you have to hear this. Now whether you believe it or not, that's, that's only what God can do in you. But I'm just going to at least state the facts. Wherever the gospel explodes, unity comes about. Racism dies. Now you might be a cynic and go, well, there's a lot of churches that are full of, I, listen, I'm not arguing with that. But there is no church where the gospel is having its say that is not obliterating racism and prejudice. And it brings groups together, and it creates a redemptive diversity. All these groups came together in this church. It's a diversity that's reflected in the leadership team. And I'm going to introduce each one of them to you. Luke identifies them. And look what he said, verse 1. They were prophets and teachers. You know what that means, right? Both prophets and teachers were all about God's word. This is a word church. This is a teaching church. If you don't have a teaching church that's not faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God, you have a weak church that is open to all kinds of false messages. So first of all, we've got Barnabas. We've already met him on a bunch of occasions. He's a Levite. You know what that means? He's a Jewish priest. So Barnabas is a priest, and he's not from Jerusalem, he's from Cyprus. He's raised in the Greek culture, and he's an incredible teacher who always left to his listeners encouraged. Now, if you like Max Lucado, or if you like um, Chuck Swindoll, that's the kind of teacher, I think, that Barnabas probably was like. He just always encouraged you. The next person on the church's leadership team we meet is Simon, who is also called Niger. Now listen to this. Niger is a word in the Greek language that means black. So I think we're on very safe grounds to say that Simeon was a black man. And most experts believe he was from Africa. And he's part of an influential part of this leadership team in this church. Again, this is a diverse group of gifted leaders, and it gets even more so as Luke goes on. Number three, you've got now Lucius of Cyrene. He comes from North Africa. That's where Cyrene was. 
It was men from Cyprus and Cyrene, if you want to look back, chapter 11, verse 20, that actually founded the church at Antioch. It was started by men from Cyrene and Cyprus. So quite probably, Lucius was part of the founding team of the church. Number four, Luke tells us about Manaen, who was also, very interestingly, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. And now we've been telling you a lot about the Herods in this sermon series. Let me tell you a little bit about Manaen. He was a Jew, but he was a Hellenistic Jew, meaning that he grew up outside of Israel. He was born outside of Israel, and he grew up in the Greek culture, not Jewish culture. He's probably in his mid-60s. That was the age of Herod the Tetrarch, whose name really was Herod Antipas. You know who Herod Antipas was? He's the third of the five Herods. He's the one who killed John the Baptist, and he briefly appeared in the trial of Jesus. That's this Herod. Manaen grew up with that Herod. He was a childhood friend, likely grew up in his family, which means then that he's probably a wealthy government official, yet he turned his back on all of that power, all of that influence, and all of that wealth to help lead this church. That's not surprising. God calls people out of significantly influentially successful positions to serve God full-time. Finally, fifthly, Luke points out what we have already known, that Saul was a leader in the church. Saul now is about to start going by Paul, was a highly trained rabbinical Jew. He's a Roman citizen. He's going to become the most influential leader in the early church. He's going to write 28% of the New Testament. But let me show you something that you might want to know about the Greek. Look at your words. Look at your names. Look at the order of the names. It's very interesting. Often in Greek grammar, the two most important words in a Greek sentence, you ready, was the first word and the last word. And if you apply that Greek style here, Luke puts Barnabas as the main leader of the church and Saul at this time just behind him. You've got five men. They're unique from one another. They're brought together in unity by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you, friends, and I hope you listen, and I would write this down if I were you, I have never seen a church full of disunity when the leadership joyfully loves each other. Never. Never even read of one. In fact, I'm going to finish that statement. I've never seen a church full of disunity when the leadership joyfully loves each other and humbly serves their church together. If you want to pray for your leadership team, whether it's at this church or if you go to another church, you should always be praying. Let them joyfully love one another and humbly serve together. I think that's probably the best way you could pray for your leadership team. And if you ever become a leader at this church, I'm going to tell you there's two grids that you're likely going to have to go through, and those grids are these. Are you humble and are you teachable? Because it doesn't matter how gifted you are, if you're not humble and you're not teachable, you are of no use to the kingdom of God. And you might have a low measure of gifts, but if you're humble and you are teachable, God can use you unbelievably well in his kingdom. The church at Antioch was being blessed 
And they were fruitful. Five godly men lead them. They are prophets and they are teachers. They are teaching the word of God. Let me just tell you one thing really quickly. Biblical prophecy is not given. Listen, biblical prophecy is not given to us because we're curious about the future. God gives it to motivate us to be obedient to his will. Do you understand that difference? That is a massive distinction. Prophetic parts of the Bible are not given to make us curious about what's coming. They are given to make us ready for it and motivated to do His will when it arrives. So we've got a church that full of, despite being incredibly diverse, they were full of unity. But number two, these leaders, this leadership team served God wholeheartedly now i have to do a bit of a corrective because it's impossible not to have this happen you and i read the bible through our american lens and our 21st century lens you just cannot get away from that that's why you have to study and show yourself approved because not everything that goes through those two lenses is really what the intent of the bible was look at verse 2 while they were worshiping the lord and fasting Now you're reading and I'm reading about worshiping the Lord and when you read that and when you hear that, many of us think something similar to what we just did. We just sang four songs. So when you hear about the word worshiping in the Bible, verse 2, it's almost unavoidable that your mind's going to think, well, they sang a lot. They sang hymns and spiritual songs and praises to the Lord, and that must be what Luke is talking about, but that's not really what the word means. The Greek word here for worshiping actually was originally used in the secular, non-biblical world for fulfilling the duties of public office. Or in other words, it was a, a worshiper was a public servant of the, of the state. But the Bible, Luke brings it out of the secular and he brings it into the kingdom of God, into the biblical meaning. And here in the Bible, it means you're more than a public service, more than your public service, it's your priestly service. See, this happens all the time in the Bible. A lot of the biblical writers, they co-opt Greek words and they bring them in and they apply it now in a theological meaning or a Christian meaning. So Luke here has in mind not public servants, priestly servants. Well, let me take you back to the Old Testament. Now, I know this sounds boring, but it's really important. There is such a book as called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. I've told you many times the Old Testament was written in Hebrew language and the New Testament mostly Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. Now listen, it was written in not classical Greek. That's what Aristotle would speak. That's what Homer, not Homer, but that's what all of these big philosophers would speak. No, it was written in Koine Greek. You know what Koine Greek is? It's street Greek. It's for the common person because God wants his word accessible to every single person, whether you're educated or not. So the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, used this word worshiping to describe what the priests would do in the tabernacle. And here in the early church, it describes these five men who are church leaders, and they're serving God, listen, through prayer. 
through oversight, through preaching, through teaching God's word. They were worshipers. They were ministers of God. And God always requires his servants who lead his churches to be humble, teachable children. Now let's just stop for a second. Let's pause because really, honestly, I'm going to give you, I think, maybe some interesting information on this in this sermon, but it's really just going to be interesting. It's not going to be life-changing unless you actually do something with this and actually expose your own heart and let the Word of God shine a light in there. So let me, let me ask you right now to think on something. And by the way, you're actually not probably the best person to answer this question. Your spouse or your best friend would be better. So I would invite you when you leave here, whether you're a child, ask it of your parents. And parents, be brave. Ask it of your children. And husbands of your wives and wives of your husbands and girlfriends of your boyfriends, etc. Let me ask you, are you humble? I know you have flares of humility. I do too. I know you have episodes of humility. I do too. But does humility strike you as a characteristic? Is it how people describe you? Now, I'm going to tell you something. When you meet a genuinely humble, like Jesus person, you cannot be around them enough. They're the most appealing people you will ever meet. Because they don't have hidden agendas. They're not trying to go up stepping on you. They're not going to use you to get what they want. See, humility means you lie low to the ground. That's what it means in the Greek. You lie low to the ground, meaning that you view everybody else as more important to you, higher than you, more worthy of you. You want to bring more honor to them and less to yourself. And when you take a humble person and you put it into the context of worshiping, now you've got a servant that says, I exist for one main reason, to do the will of my God. Friends, do you know what God can do with you? Are you teachable? That's your second question. Are you teachable? Do you hunger? Now listen, not to learn just from the big wigs in the kingdom of God, but from the people that God puts into your life. Maybe it's your pastor, maybe it's an elder like Caleb Van Summern, maybe it's your best friend, maybe it's the person you're married to. Are you teachable, where your heart is moldable, malleable, shapeable? It's hungry to not be tomorrow who you are today. That's a teachable person. And you cannot be a teachable person if you're not lying low to the ground. And if you're lying low to the ground, you learn the skill of teachability. You hunger for wisdom. See, I'm describing to you these five men. I'm describing to you this leadership team. Because a proud Christian cannot be a worshiper. Their hearts will not bow before God. And as they served the Lord, they did so, look at the text, with fasting. Now, the Bible doesn't command fasting. Some of you are going to be shocked by that. The Pharisees in the New Testament commanded fasting three times a week, but the Bible does not command fasting. 
but it assumes that we will fast because fasting is a time where you abstain from food intentionally so that you can have a heightened attention and a focused heart to hear from God. That's what you're doing. Listen, if you think fasting is to try to manipulate God to do your will, you don't understand biblical fasting. It's about you listening to God more and your heart conforming to his will. That's what fasting does. It is a very powerful discipline, and these men practiced it. In fact, this church, these men, they had a critical and serious decision to make. The people of the Roman world needed the gospel, but who is going to go into the dangerous Roman world with the message of Jesus? This is the decision they had. So they fasted, and they worshiped, they served, and they said, God, conform our wills to yours and make our ears attentive to your voice. And that's exactly what's about to happen. Point number three, these leaders were focused on mission. Now, I'm almost, I can't say I'm almost done. I don't think that would be actually true. But, I, hey, listen, be encouraged. I'm on my third point. In Acts 8, it was persecution that drove the church to Judea and Samaria. Right, did you hear that? It's persecution that got them moving. But here in Acts 13, it's not persecution. It's the Spirit of God that launches the gospel into the Roman Empire. Look at verse 2. The Holy Spirit said. Do you know that the Spirit of God speaks? Do you know that He actually still speaks? Have I ever heard God's Spirit speak loudly or at least audibly? My wife would insist, yes, through her all the time. I don't know, I'm a little suspect, but I've definitely heard God speak into my heart. He has often done it, done it through the Word of God, but not just in the Word of God, in serious times of prayer where I was poverty-filled in spirit. Matthew 5. God still speaks. And the Spirit of God instills in the hearts of his people a worldwide vision for missions. Christian, I want you to think with me. I want you to think. This is such a really thought-provoking question. Why didn't God bring you to heaven the moment you were saved? Why didn't he bring you to heaven the moment you were saved? I think it's not because God needs to get you cleaned up a little bit before you get to move in with him for eternity. I don't think it's that. I don't think that it's because heaven is still under construction because of delays and lumber cost overruns. Listen, it's due to one main reason. Why did God not take you to heaven the moment you were saved? Here it is. Because you are to live for God's glory and bring others to know his love. That's your reason for still being here. Listen, don't... I'm going to give you a lot of penultimate and secondary and third, fourth, fifth, okay? And there's a lot of reasons why you're still here. But the grand ultimate reason is so that you can be an instrument of God to bring spiritually dead people to life. Yes, it's so that you can enjoy marriage one day. Yes, so you can enjoy having children one day. Yes, so that you can enjoy having a successful career where you bring glory to God. Those are all penultimate, second to ultimate, and inferior reasons. The grand reason is so that you and so that I can bring spiritually lost people to Christ. That's why you're here. It's why he didn't take you to heaven 
He wants to save people all over the world and then work through them to save even more. So here's my ultimate question for you to really think on. If God's call comes to you to follow him in a greater service, will you respond joyfully, faithfully, and obediently? If God's call comes to you to serve him in greater service, maybe outside of your comfort zone, will you respond joyfully, faithfully, and obediently? Watch what happens in the church of Antioch when the Spirit of God comes calling. Verse 3, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Here's what the Spirit of God said. I'm calling Barnabas, and I'm calling Saul into greater service, and Barnabas and Saul and the other three men on the leadership team and the church all said yes. And here's the beautiful picture of these men. They were humble servants of God, worshipers, and they cared for his church, and as a result of their faithful service, God calls them into greater service. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? This is the most exciting thing I think I'm going to be telling you in this message. God does not call people who are doing nothing for his glory. He calls people who are faithfully laboring for his glory. If you're not doing anything in the kingdom of God, brother, sister, I'm going to tell you, you will not receive a call into greater service. And if you are faithful right now with the little that he asks, he is going to bring you more. He is going to ask you to do more. And he's going to empower you to do more. And he's going to use you in greater ways. If you want to hear God's call for greater future responsibility in his kingdom, then serve him faithfully now. Because, Christian, God already has your good works planned. Does he not say in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, listen, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you understand what that means? God's already prepared all the things that he's going to ask you to do. And as you walk with him, he begins giving you greater and greater responsibility that will yield more and more fruit and increase glory for his name. But you must be faithful in what he's given you to do now or you will not be called into greater service. But don't make the error that so many have. Do not neglect the role of your elders in helping you discern that call and affirming it through the laying on of hands. Friends, I have seen this over and over and over and over. It is one of the saddest things that I ever experienced as a pastor. When somebody thinks that they're being called, and likely are, by God into a greater service, and they bypass the elders, and they launch into it, so often meets with destruction. There's a reason God has given elders to the church. There's a reason that they are to shepherd the church. In the Old Testament, the worshiper would take his sacrifice to the temple, 
And just before offering it to the Lord, listen, this is grotesque, but listen, he would lay his hands on the head of the animal and he would express his identification with it and then he would cut the throat of the animal. Do you understand what's happening? There's always an identification process among laying on of hands. And here we see it happening. The assembled church of Antioch lays their hands on these two missionaries, Barnabas and Saul. They're sent ones. And what they're saying is this, we affirm that God is calling you into increased service to him, and we are partnering with you with our support, our blessings, and our prayers. That's what laying of hands does. It means you're being set apart by God for a special work, just like Moses did with Joshua. Look at Numbers 27. And Moses laid his hands and commissioned Joshua as the Lord directed through Moses. So listen, here's what I'm saying. If you want to be used by God more greatly than you are right now, if you want to do greater things for God than you are right now, then you've got to be faithful or you will never hear that call into increased service. And as you are faithful in the little that he's entrusted to you, he will entrust more to you when the right time has come. And when you execute on that and you are faithful to that as a worshiper, as a minister who is humble and teachable, he will bring great fruit out of your life and people will recognize it and the elders of the church will recognize it and they will lay their hands on you and they will set you apart as the Lord is doing for increased special service and their blessings will go with you as a partner with you see not only did laying of hands dedicate someone to the lord's service it publicly recognized continuing partnership with the work that god has called that person to do are you doing something for the lord that's new and finding that there is no fruitfulness with it I'm going to tell you most often, in my experience, is because you never came around the elders and said, would you lay your hands on us and on me and anoint me to do this work? Five faithful men leading this church, and God calls two of them to greater service to him. And they're going to launch the gospel around the world. Now, I'm almost done. I'm in my closing thoughts, so I want your utmost attention if you can give it. What do you do then with what I just preached? What do you do with what you've just learned in this passage? I'm going to offer you a few suggestions. Number one, pray that our leadership team at this church would strive always for unity amid diverse backgrounds. Pray that all of us, me included and me chiefly, stay humble and teachable. We are no good to God if we don't. Number two, You serve God faithfully and anticipate his call into greater works of ministry. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 25. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Do you know in 1988 that message from Jerry Falwell saved my life? Utterly changed it. Utterly, and I mean a 180 degree change. I was living hedonistically in this world. Everything in the world I could get, I got. That message changed my life. I want to do greater things for his glory. Well, if I'm going to be doing greater things, I've got to be faithful in what he's given me now. 
And finally, that greater service will be always to live for God's glory and bring others to know his love. Friends, that's the ultimate reason a Christian should live. And that's where I'm going to take you. Are you sharing Jesus? Are you telling people about the hope of the gospel? Are you walking towards spiritually dead people with utmost confidence? You hold out the words of life, the Bible says. And they need to hear it. And you will not back down. You will be loving, but you will be bold. And you will share with them the way of Jesus. Brother and sister, we can walk without fear, Gordon McDonald said, George McDonald rather, full of hope and courage and strength to do his will, waiting for the endless good which he is always giving us as fast as he can get us able to take it in. Read that. Come on, read it. Get it in your mind. Your heavenly Father has endless good. And he wants to pour it in, but he's got to make you able to take it in. So be faithful. Be humble. Be teachable. Lie low to the ground. Honor everyone around you. If they get the raises at work, and if they get the position changes at work, and they're going up the ladder, be thankful for them. Pray for them. Bless them. Be humble. The, the corporate ladder in the kingdom of God goes the other way. It goes down into servanthood. And the farther you go down, the more God will take you up, and he will use you for incredible things in his kingdom. Amen? Father, thank you for these five men. Lord, what an example they are to me. What an example they are to us. Lord, what a great church they were. This church in Antioch, a powerhouse of a church. They launched the gospel into the Roman Empire. And how could they do that? They had Barnabas. They had Lucius. It's Simeon. Manaan. They had Saul. Lord, these were humble, humble, teachable men. And they ministered, they worshiped, they served God. That was their life purpose. And you called to them. The Spirit of God called and they responded. And they all agreed, Barnabas and Paul need to go with the gospel. And we're about to see just how powerful that call would be. Lord, they laid their hands on them, they fasted. They set apart food for a time so that they could hear you more clearly, that they could pay, pay attention to your voice, and you spoke and you directed. And you did amazing things. Lord, would you raise up people in this church? Lord, give them greater responsibility. Let them be faithful where they are now. Lord, give them greater responsibility. Use them, whether it's in this church or outside of this church. Father, I pray that we would see people going down the, the ladder of the kingdom into greater and greater servanthood. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.